I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I want it this morning, I want to talk to you for just a few moments on the subject of inside out. Inside out. This morning, as I drove to church, a block from my house, there was a man who was sleeping beside a fence. My first thought was, there goes the neighborhood. I'm not real excited about the idea of a homeless person sleeping next to a fence a block from my house. A week ago, I stood in a refugee camp halfway around the world. Driven by compassion. One week later, I'm irritated because someone who hasn't navigated life as well as what I would like is sleeping leaned up against a fence. And I found, I found myself asking the question, how can I have compassion for somebody halfway around the world and not be concerned about this guy who's in my own neighborhood? I'm so glad that he who's begun a good work in us continues that work until it's day of completion. And I'm, I'm thankful for those teachable moments. The, uh, the 23-year-old gentleman that I met in Calais, France, named Naj. Well, he'll be 23 on the 6th of September. Naj has been a refugee since the age of eight. His father was an important man in the Afghan government who was brutally butchered by the Taliban. His mother watched her husband literally be cut apart, and it caused her to go insane. And so Naj and his one older brother and two older sisters were left to fend for themselves and they have been refugees for the last 15 years. Naj speaks five languages fluently. And he's learned them because of where life has taken him. He, he sleeps during the day and he walks at night. Because he doesn't have a safe place to stay. 
He's in a refugee camp with 9,000 other people that, um, that are all living lives of desperation. And desperate people will do desperate things. And so as I talked with Naj in his sleep-deprived state, I realized that more than anything, what he needed was change. Something has to change. I met Naj just a few moments after talking with Jamal. Jamal came into a tent that we'd set up where we were handing out underwear. It seems strange to me to go into a refugee camp and hand out underwear. I quickly discovered it was one of the major needs that they have. And, and I have to tell you, we made a, we made a tactical error. We, we took a bunch of underwear and we took in mediums and larges. Um, the people in this camp are not as big as I am. And the mediums went very quickly and then they would ask us in the best way they could with the language barrier, do you have anything smaller? And we had to say, no, that's all we have. And they took it. And so I will tell you that in Calais, France, there's a bunch of men wearing briefs that look like boxers. But that's... <laughs> but we started handing out these underwear. And, 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 and honestly, we set up a tent and immediately there was a line at least a thousand people long. They had no idea what we were handing out. They just knew we were handing out something. They started to come in and and, uh, and, and right at the very beginning, there was a guy who came in, and, and most of the refugees that we were seeing, um, this was last Friday uh, in Calais, most of the refugees that we were seeing at this point, they were from, from the South Sudan. So they were very dark-skinned, and there, there was a, a gentleman that came in, and he was very light-skinned, and he, he spoke in uh, impeccable English. And he said, where are you folks from? And uh, our missionary, uh, Michael McNamee, said, I'm, I'm from Ireland. And uh, two of the other girls that were with us said, you know, we're from Brussels. And he looked at me, and, and not wanting to create an international incident, um, I, I was not at that point ready to reveal that I was an American. And I, so I said, my family used to be from Ireland. Hey, listen, don't judge me. They, we, in the 1800s, we came from Ireland, and so I was just trying to be discreet. And, and so, and he said this, he said, good, because I hate Americans. And then our, our missionary, Michael, asked him the question, said, uh, so where are you from? And he said, I'm from Afghanistan, from the northern Afghanistan. I said, oh. He said, and are you trying to get to London? And he said, no, I'm going to Afghanistan. And Michael said, no, 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 I didn't ask you where you're from. I asked you where you're going. He says, yes, I'm from Afghanistan. I'm headed back to Afghanistan. He said, I've been in Italy. I've been in Spain. I've been in England. And now I'm in France. I'm headed back to Afghanistan. To which uh, our missionary said, why would you be headed back to Afghanistan? He goes, he goes I'm, I'm headed back to Afghanistan to pick up a gun and fight. Because that's what I am. That's what I do. And then he proceeded to talk about how various governments bomb his people indiscriminately and they do it for profit. And he, 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 he bashed country after country after country, uh, spent a long time bashing America. And then he, he talked about even his own country, the, the, the country in Afghanistan. And, and he, he said what they do, he says, the wealthy pit the poor against one another. He said, he said you cannot believe what anyone says. And that was the opening that I was looking for. And I said to him, I said, Jamal, what you just said is true. I said, you cannot believe what people say. I said, 
let me illustrate. I said, Jamal, I, I'm an American. Not only am I an American, I'm a Christian. Not only am I a Christian, I'm the leader of a church. I said, Jamal, I've not handed you any propaganda. I, I've not said anything in a defaming way about your religion. I didn't come here with some covert agenda. Neither did anyone on this team. I said, and, and everyone that you see that's here helping, these are all Christians. And we're here today for one reason, and that is no one should have to live this way. I said, Jamal, I said, I, I know you hear a lot about America, and I know you hear a lot about Americans, and I know that you hear a lot about Christians. I said, but Jamal, don't believe everything you hear. And when I began to talk to them about this, I said, Jamal, I want you to look me in the eyes because I, I want you to know that what I'm telling you is truth. And I said what I said to him, and then he responded to me. And I watched his eyes carefully, and what I saw was not anger. I saw his eyes tear up. And he looked at me, and he said this. He said, Ed, I want you to know I don't hate you. I said, that's encouraging. <laughs> and then I said this to him. I said, Jamal, I want you to do something for me. Well, he asked me if he could have my cell phone number, and I said no. <laughs> I said, but I will give you my email address. And uh, so we exchanged email addresses, and uh, I said, Jamal, I want you to do something for me. I want you to pray for me. Pray to God, pray to Allah, whatever terminology you want to use. I want you to pray for me, and I, I want you to know that I make this commitment, that I will pray for you, and, and here's how I want us to pray. I want us to pray. I want you to pray for me, and I will pray for you that we will not be caught in deception but they will, we will know the truth because if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Yeah. He reached out his hand and I took his hand and he held my hand and he said this to me. He said, with tears in his eyes, he said this, my friend, isn't that interesting? I hate Americans. My friend, I will pray for you. And I said back to him, I said, my friend, I will pray for you. So God, right now I keep my word and I, I pray for my friend, Jamal. I don't know if he's still in Calais or if he's on his way back to Afghanistan. But God, he is a, a man who has been caught in a maze of half-truths and outright lies. And I pray, God, that you would allow truth, that you would allow understanding, that you would allow wisdom to come to him. And God, that truth that it would forever change his course. I come against the deceiver 
I bind him, declare him a defeated foe. And I speak your presence and your peace and your truth into my friend Jamal right now in Jesus' name. Amen. He said this to me. He said, you are the first person that I've ever spoken to who has acknowledged that they are Christian. And my response to that was, I said, well, my hope is this, is that I have represented who we are well. And he smiled and he said, it wasn't what I expected. God's calling us to be different. He's called us to be salt and light. And it's interesting to me, in Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he begins by saying something that is absolutely unexpected. And and to the audience there on the Galilean hillside, it makes no sense. He begins by saying this, blessed. That's a good way to start, because everybody wants to know how to be blessed, right? Then he says this, blessed are the poor. What? Blessed? Are the poor. Does that make sense to you? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? Blessed are the poor. And he goes on, and again and again, he says this throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He says, Listen, you have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. You have heard, but I say. Listen, you, you've had this modeled to you, but don't be like them. It says, you're, you're called to be something different. You're, you're called to, to make a shift in the way that the world is functioning and, and in the way things are going. It's really easy to look at the world around us and go, ah, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. I don't think there's anything that I can do. On Wednesday, I was in a refugee camp on the, on the Bul- Bulgaria Turkey border in, in Harman Lee, Bulgaria. And this particular ref- refugee camp, it's an, it's an old NATO army barracks. And so they actually have, they're not living in tents. And in, in Calais, uh, 7,000 of the 9,500 that are there are living in tents. The other 2,500 are living in shipping containers. Um, in in Harman Lee, they, at least they have army barracks. And it actually looks more like a prisoner of war camp than army barracks. But, but at, least they are, at least they are sheltered. And uh, uh, that's mainly um, Syrian and Afghanistan refugees. And, uh, and so we, we went there to look at um, what our, our missionaries are doing there uh, through a ministry, Convoy of Hope, a ministry that we support in a substantial way. Uh, Convoy of Hope uh, works with one of the local missionaries in a program there called the Oasis Center that provides food and provides clothing uh, for the refugees that are coming in. And, uh, and just shortly after we got there, there was a, a, a Syrian mother and her uh, approximately six-year-old child that had just arrived at the camp. And uh, they, had, they had walked over a thousand miles. And all they had were the clothes that were on their back and the tattered shoes that they had worn for this entire journey. And so one of the Christians in the camp told them about the Oasis Center and brought them and asked the, the missionary woman that coordinates that particular camp, 
um, that, the, the relief efforts in that camp. She's not in charge of the camp. The, the Bulgarian government are in charge of the camp. Um, but she, she, uh, he, he brought her and said, uh, brought this, this woman and, and child and said, can, can I get some clothes for them? And, and the missionary said, certainly. And so they started to dig through these, these trash bags of clothes. And they, they found some clothes and they found some shoes for the mother. And they were having a hard time finding shoes for the little girl. And, and as, I, as I stood there feeling somewhat helpless um, because of not wanting to um, do something that's, that, that would be culturally uh, unacceptable and, and not, not knowing what language they spoke, much less being able to speak the language, um, I stood there and, and, uh, and, th- and then I realized, you know what, I, I can help them find these shoes. So I started digging through bag after bag of shoes. And, and quite honestly, in full disclosure, I, I initially I was frustrated because I was, I was pulling out shoe after shoe where there was no match. And I thought, why in the world would people donate one shoe? It's just the goofiest thing. And I'd empty out the entire bag and I would go, there's, there's seriously, in this bag, there's like half these shoes have no match. And I'm, I'm digging through, through these shoes and, and trying to find ch- children's shoes. I find some children's shoes and they would be either way too big or, or way too small. And, and, um, and then the, the missionary woman said this. She said, you know what, I'm sorry, we need to go. They're going to have to come back a different time. And I, I said this to her. I said, No. She said, we've got other, other appointments we have to make today. There are other people that I need you to, to meet. There are other, other people that I need you to talk with. And I said, no. I said, there's nothing more important to me than this girl finding shoes. And she said this. She said this. She said, you know, she goes, Pastor, you can't help everyone. And I said, you know what? I might not be able to help everyone, but I can help this girl. And I said, let me explain something to you. I said, I'm not leaving until this girl has shoes. I don't care if I have to wait here while you go into town and buy this girl's shoes. And I don't care how much money I have to give you to get this girl's shoes. This girl's going to have shoes. So I said, you have a choice. You can stand there and watch or you can go get her shoes or you can get in and start digging through some of these bags. Because this girl is going to have shoes. You know, here's what happens. We do this. We look and we go... What is the little that I can do in light of how massive the need is? And and if we begin to look at things from a different perspective, if we shift to an inside-out philosophy, let me say that again, if we shift to an inside-out philosophy, because I'm convinced this, that we live outside-in. What that means is this. It means we allow what's going on around us to determine the disposition of our heart and the attitude of our mind rather than allowing the disposition of our heart and the attitude of our mind to impact the world around us. Right? Jesus deals with this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, listen, you need to stop Storing, for yourself, storing up for yourself treasures on earth where rust and moth corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. You need to quit thinking that you somehow have to be the provider for your needs. Because that was never my design. It was never my design from the foundation of the world. 
From the very foundation of the world, it was God's plan that he would be Jehovah Jireh, the God that does provide. There's this old wives' tale that says, God helps those who help themselves, which is absolutely not true. The very first sermon that Jesus preached, he says this, blessed are the poor. And in the language that he was speaking, there were two different words that he could have used that mean poor. And one means to be beggarly poor, that you eke out a meager existence. And the other means destitute poor, that if somebody doesn't help, you're without hope. And he chose to use the term destitute poor. Blessed are those who understand at soul level Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who understand that unless there's some outside intervention, they are without hope. And when they get that, when they realize that and respond, right? Blessed are they that mourn. That attitude, that heart, that disposition of repentance. When we we recognize that we cannot do it on our own, that God didn't design us to do it on our own, something powerful happens and when this connection with very real God happens isn't the name of Jesus wonderful but here's here's what it takes okay it takes more than knowing the word Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by saying blessed are the poor in spirit Blessed are those who have an understanding that without something divine happening in their life, they are absolutely hopeless. And then he ends the Sermon on the Mount by saying this, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like the wise man who builds his house upon the rock. And the rains descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these sayings of mine and does not do them, and here's my concern. Let me go from preaching to meddling. Here's my concern. I think that, that the vast majority of, of, of those of us who populate churches across America and around the world, we hear these words, we understand the principles but we don't apply them. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where rust and moth corrupt, where thieves break in and steal. And yet, we are a consumer generation, we are a debt generation, we are a stuffed generation. We store up. Less than one-third of Christians in evangelical churches follow God's biblical command regarding stewardship. And we do it not because we're greedy. We do it because we're fearful. And we're stuck in this vicious cycle. So we store up for ourselves treasures, and then we worry about whether it's going to be enough. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't worry about what you will eat or drink, about what you will wear. I will take care of you. But instead, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. By the way, don't judge others. Right? 
That's where he gets to in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 6 is, is don't worry. Matthew chapter 7, he says, don't judge others. Or you too will be judged. It's real easy. And we live in a world where critique is very much in vogue. And no one does it better than the Christian community. Let me tell you, friend, what's wrong with you. That's the refrain of the typical Christian. Jamal, let me tell you why you're following a false religion. Do you understand in that moment, that was not my job. Pastor, you didn't talk to him about four spiritual laws. You didn't mention the name of Jesus. You sent that guy to a Christless eternity. That was not my job. My job in that moment was to demonstrate love and compassion. See, I think, we, I think that we get confused on what our job is. Okay? My job is not to bring conviction. You know whose job that is? That's the Holy Spirit's job. Okay? Your job is not to bring conviction. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's not your job to save people. That's Jesus' job. Okay? Here's your job. You are the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You are, to go out, you are to go out into the highways and byways and compel them to come in. Live your life in such a way. Man, live your life in such a way. You know what I think? I think that most people if they watch the Christian culture, I think they would go, I don't know if I want to be a part of that. It doesn't seem like much fun. And they're, they're usually pretty angry about something. Right? And they're just some of the meanest people. I shared, a, I shared a story here a couple years ago that I think is appropriate to share today in light of what I experienced in that refugee camp in Bulgaria. In 1849, there was a, a major gold rush in California, followed up by a, a, a gold rush in Colorado 10 years later in 1859. And, and most people don't know about the Colorado gold rush, but there was actually more gold found in Colorado than there was in California. And there was a gentleman by the name of Wilfred Darby. Wilfred Darby lived in uh, Williamsburg, Maryland. And, uh, and heard about the, the gold rush in California. And uh, he, he just, he, it just it, he missed it, right? So about 10 years later now, there's another gold rush in Colorado. And he goes, I'm not missing it again. And so he makes his way out to Colorado. Gets, him, gets a claim, stakes a claim, goes out there with a pickaxe in hand and starts digging to find gold. And sure enough, he finds it. 
finds a pretty good size of mallet, and it, it freaks him out. He's like, oh my goodness, I actually found gold. And, uh, but he realizes that it, it's, there, there, there's more there than what he can handle. And so he, he, he covers everything up, right? And he hurriedly makes his way back from Colorado to Williamsburg, Maryland, and, and gets from his family uh, as much money as he can convince them to invest to where he can buy some, some, some larger, large-scale equipment to mine this gold. He convinces his nephew, R.U. Darby, to go out with him. And, uh, and so they make their way back out to Colorado. Shortly after they got out there, uh, the, the uncle, uh, he passes away. But here's R.U. Darby, a young man. And he's got this, this claim, and there's gold. And they begin mining, and, and they're finding a considerable amount of gold. And it, it's, it's really, it, it's, it's mind-blowing. And then all of a sudden, the, the gold dries up. And they keep digging and keep digging. And now instead of making money, they're spending money. They keep digging and digging, and they're spending more money and more money and more money. And the investment that his family has made... Now, instead of producing a massive profit, that investment is at risk. And R.U. thinks about his family and the, 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 these finances that they've invested. And he thinks about what it'd be like to have to tell his family that he's lost everything. And so after a significant soul searching, he decides, you know what? I gotta quit while I'm slightly ahead. So he finds someone to buy the mining equipment at scrap metal prices. Sells the, 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 the equipment and gives them the claim. And he makes his way back to Williamsburg, Maryland. The The man who bought the equipment was getting ready to haul it off and turn it into scrap when he thought, what would it hurt to dig just a little bit more? Three feet later, he landed on the biggest gold find in the history of the United States of America. R.U. Darby had stopped digging three feet short. It's a true story. From the time the woman said, we need to go, and I told her, I'm not going. Three minutes. It took us three minutes from the time I said, look, I'm finding this girl's shoes. Until we found her not one, but two pair of shoes. Well, actually, a pair of shoes and a pair of flip-flops. You know what I'm convinced of? I'm convinced that far too many of us, that we live our life three feet short. We live our life three feet short. Don't worry about tomorrow what you'll eat what you'll drink what clothes you'll wear 
Right? Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field. They, they don't toil or spin. Solomon, all of his royal robe doesn't have the splendor of them. Consider the birds of the air. They, they seemingly have no value. And yet God wonderfully provides for them. How much more will he clothe you and provide for you? Because we live our lives outside in, because we're so concerned with what the world is doing and we're so concerned with what the world thinks, we render ourselves practically ineffective for the cause of the kingdom. However, if we would be sensitive to the heart, if we would truly be spirit-led inside out, The revolution that would sweep our city, our nation, and our world is unparalleled. There are 128,000 people that live in Calais, France. There are five churches that are connected with the fellowship that we're connected with, the Assemblies of God. And of those five churches that are in Calais, five Assembly of God churches that are in Calais, a sum total of zero are doing any work in a refugee camp that holds 9,500 hopeless people. It's so easy to turn a blind eye. However, before you judge the church in France, let's talk about what we do in Orlando. There is that, that man that works in the cubicle just a few spots away from you. His marriage is in trouble. He, he looks at inappropriate images on the computer as a means of escape. And he's hurting and he's convinced that no one cares. There's that There's that woman that lives three doors down from you. She's just got her notice of foreclosure. She never imagined when her husband died that things would sink so far, so fast. 
There's that person that sits two rows behind you in your class. They've written the note so many times. They've even thought about doing the deed more than once. And they're completely convinced that no one would notice if they disappeared. There's that cousin who is so caught up in career and is convinced that that next promotion is the answer to happiness. Because the last promotion didn't bring the joy that was expected. But is bought into the lie that this next one is going to be different. Why? Because that's what the world tells us. And the only thing that's going to make a difference in that coworker's life, the only thing that's going to make a difference in that neighbor's life, the only thing that's going to make a difference in that classmate's life, the only thing that's going to make a difference in that family member's life is coming to the genuine understanding that isn't the name of Jesus wonderful? Isn't the name of Jesus powerful? That there's healing in that name, that there's power in the name, that there's salvation in that name, that there's forgiveness in that name, that there's life in that name. That there is no other name. But Jesus. It's why when when Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room, he said, Remember. I'm going to ask the musicians to come back to the platform. Last time I was with you, which I have to be honest, with the miles that I've traveled, it seems like it was forever. It's so good to be home. Um, we talked about Jesus in the upper room. Right? We talked about him not denying who he was, not rejecting his identity, not rejecting his authority, not denying that which he was entitled to. Right? He said to his followers, you, you call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that's what I am. A day later, he was Asked by Pilate if he was a king, and he said, you call me a king, and rightly so. But in the midst of that, having all these rights, 
Jesus did something that was inside out. Upside down. In the natural, makes no sense. Shouldn't have been a surprise to his disciples because he starts his ministry with a statement, blessed are the poor. So it would make sense that he would do something that that defies natural logic. When he takes off his coat of entitlement, his coat of authority, and he picks up the towel of service. I, I would echo what I said to you two weeks ago. I wonder what would happen if Calvary would take off its, its coat of entitlement and pick up the towel of service. Thank you for joining us for Calvary Connect. We hope you've been blessed by the ministry of Calvary Orlando. We invite you to join us in person at Calvary Orlando for our Sunday morning worship experience each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. We are located right off I-4 at 1199 Clay Street. To connect more with Calvary, visit our website at calvaryorlando.tv. Here you can find our latest events and ministry opportunities. Thanks for watching and God bless.